You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me yet again, my colleague, co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to see you. We are having the uh, the version of Driving Law in the great outdoors. We're yeah. recording outside and we're doing it for um, specific reasons. We are actually um, in the same location. Yes, for once we're in the same location, but we can't be indoors together. For safety. Yes, you were exposed to someone who was um, yes uh, tested positive for COVID. So I, can't be in the same room, but we can yeah. be outside, and it's relatively safe, I guess, if I'm this distant from you. Yeah, relatively safe, safe enough. In any event, and uh, also the weather has finally, finally, summer weather is here in Vancouver. Just in time for me to lock myself down with a COVID exposure. Yeah. Yay! Yeah, this well, is the second long weekend in, in a row of long weekends. But it's your favorite, favorite thing to do is to be at, at home working. Yeah, but I was kind of hoping to go to a baseball game tomorrow. Mm, yeah, well, test yourself tomorrow and see whether or not you're positive and maybe you're fine. Yeah, well, I only have one test left. So. You would be, um, that'd be your th- third, third, uh, third COVID. my third COVID, and it's not unheard of for no. three COVIDs. I know. It does happen. It's going to happen to anyone. Gosh darn it, it'll happen to me. Anyway, so this is the Canada Day special no. outdoor episode. No. No? I don't believe in Canada Day. Mm, okay. Not right. only should we not believe in Canada Day because of, you know, reconciliation, but also we should not believe in Canada Day because if we look back over the last seven months of Canada, what have we had with our flags? and our symbols, and our capital. Well, we need to take it back at some point from these fascists, um, wannabe fascists, whatever they are. Uh, but uh, it doesn't have to be this Canada Day. Maybe it'll be next Canada Day. But, um, yeah, so there you go. On a driving lawn note, Canada is giving a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, armored vehicles that we just had manufactured to Ukraine. Yes. So I'm happy about that. Well... Speaking of driving law, I thought that we would talk about a very interesting court decision. And because we're recording on my phone, you're going to have to pull it up on your phone. I sent it to you so I can tell people the name of it. The decision involves an individual who uh, was given a red light camera ticket. I don't know if it was a speed camera or red light camera, but it doesn't really matter. Um, The decision is called Vershinin. It was published on the uh, BC Provincial Court website today. Um, And it is a case where there was a question about whether or not the identity of the vehicle was proven. So what happens, for those of you who haven't received a camera ticket, is you get a photo of your vehicle committing the offense. It shows the vehicle, it shows the license plate, and it shows... um, the intersection and, and the speed at which you're moving through the intersection, whether it's to prove the speeding allegation or to prove that you didn't stop at the red light. And there's also a close-up shot that usually comes of the actual license plate to the vehicle. 
And so the question that often arises in these cases is, is this a BC license plate? And to get around having to actually have somebody come and go, nope, that's a BC license plate, they file a certificate that says that somebody looked at the picture, who was an enforcement officer, intersection enforcement officer, they looked at the picture of the license plate, and based on their assessment, it looked to them to be a BC license plate, and they ran it, and the plate number matched up with a BC plate associated to the type of vehicle. All good, everything is perfect. Don't look behind door number two. Do not talk to the man behind the curtain. That's interesting. I can see a number of ways that you could get around that. Um, a, you could uh, um, slightly misdescribe the color of your vehicle at some point when you register it. Don't uh, do that. My friends, my neighbor has a, uh, a silver Ford F-150 that I sold him years ago. And for some strange reason, a number of people seem to think it's white. Um, two, you could take off the markings off the trucks or off the vehicle. So if you have a Hyundai or a Kia, they're often very similar looking. And if you took off the logo um, off the back, it might not be quite so clear to many people looking at it, especially, you know, it's moving along. Emma Wilson and I both drive different makes and models of car, but they look very much the same. Yeah, I know. And sometimes when I've seen her driving up, I think it's you, or I see you driving <laughs> up, and I think it's her. Um, same color, uh, sedan, yep. and um, blue sedan. And you're thinking to yourself, hmm. Um, so, you know, there is some, some room for error there, no doubt. Yeah, so what happened in this case was Mr. Vicentinen Vershinen um, Mr. Vershinen said uh, that the photograph of the license plate was not clear enough because the zoomed-in image of the plate, it wasn't clear that the decal in the middle of the plate, if you've ever looked at your BC plate, there's a decal in the middle that has the province of British Columbia's logo. Yeah. But the photo wasn't clear enough to make out that that logo actually belonged to the province of British Columbia. And so the question was, could the court rely on the certificate evidence on its own to say that this must have been a BC license plate? Interesting. Yes, very interesting. And you and I talk about certificate evidence all the time because certificates are an evidentiary shortcut. So their method of basically proving something of it is an essential element that would otherwise require someone to come and testify. And the assumption is that there really would never be a cross-examination of the uh, evidence in the case because it's so clear, uh, not, not really something that you could dispute, and that it is all the questions about it are answered on the four corners of the document, more or less. So usually it's in the middle where the typing is. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> you know, sort of a legal phrase. Anyway, yeah. the uh, I carry a certificate. What, uh, 1970s certificate case in my briefcase with me. You do all, all the time. time. Yep. Peter, Just Peterson? in case I need it. I can't remember, Nolan's but it's in my little stack books. of things that I use for argument. Yeah, maybe Noble. I could go get my briefcase. That's we okay. Could check. We, don't, we don't need to check. So the certificate says on the four corners of the document, I looked at this image and this was a decal for British Columbia. But the photographic evidence is attached to the certificate. And the real question that the trier of fact, Judicial Justice Hayes, had to wrestle with in the um, traffic court decision was whether or not the certificate 
was um, sufficient on its own, even where there was obvious ambiguity in the photographic evidence? And could the trier of fact substitute his own review of the photographic evidence over the certificate? Well, I think they can if there's a question about it, and that is to conclude that it's not a reliable certificate. But I don't think they could for the purpose of saying that it's a reliable certificate. In other words, they couldn't if it was, if it, and I guess that would never happen. But I mean, if the if the government was alleging, well, here's our certificate, we don't think it's perfect, but you can you can get around it. Yeah, uh, they couldn't do that. But no. certainly, the trier of fact is in a position to say this certificate. Is doesn't answer all the questions. Yes. And the remedy for the Crown, of course, if there is an ambiguity, is to call the witness. Yeah. Call the evidence. Instead of relying on an evidentiary shortcut, put in the evidence that you intend to rely on. So at paragraph 12 of the judgment, the judgment is really long because it's got a lot of block quotes from other, um, other cases, but paragraph 12 really sums it up. The court says, in other photo radar cases, the Supreme Court of British Columbia has also applied Regina and Noble, Regina and Pierce, and Regina and Smith. The court stated that ambiguities in the certificate evidence upon which the Crown is relying to obtain a conviction, where the Crown enjoys a relaxed evidentiary burden, are to be strictly interpreted in favor of the accused. The that's that's yep. great. It's nice, clear language. Yep. And the enforcement officer's interpretation of the decal um, was... Uh, not uh, sufficient because the image uh, of the decal was too indistinct to establish the jurisdiction, and having taken a view of the image, I must agree with the disputant and enter an acquittal. Excellent. One of the rare acquittals in camera cases. Yeah, and you know, we don't uh, we don't fight camera cases unless they're commercial vehicles. Yeah, well, it's um, not worth it. Because <laughs> it's not, it just doesn't make sense financially for the person to hire a lawyer to do it, and I don't necessarily discourage people um, from doing it, but the, um, uh, you know, maybe we should be looking at them before we tell people that they might be better off to pay it. What? Like, and hope that the, the photograph is, you know, yeah, I mean, I suppose so. There's probably been lots of people who've had, had sketchy photographs. So if you get a camera case, give us a call and we'll look at it. Now there's an interesting thing because years ago, uh, people look at, um, the extra information that's on a license plate that's not related to the license plate. For example, beautiful British Columbia. <laughs> and there was a case, and I recall it being in the news, and I've never looked for it. Uh, but my recollection is the person was successful in saying, I don't want to have to say this. It's a freedom of speech issue, and I don't want to say beautiful. I and think British Columbia is ugly, all those mountains and trees and rivers and salmon. No, and no but the point is they were they were entitled to block it off. Um and uh, the court sided with them, huh. it was my recollection. Um, so it would seem to me that, you know, the flag uh, might be a different thing because it's no, longer a, it's no longer a statement, a different statement. But the, um, um, yeah, I, I see the issue there. I think you could probably, you could probably block off the beautiful mm-hmm. and you might have an uh, extra defense on your traffic ticket if they looked at it and saw it. Of course, they didn't know it was a Hyundai or a Kia. So I also wanted to talk about another issue related to driving law that uh, came up uh, in a judgment from the BC Court of Appeal released today, which is Thursday, because Friday is a holiday um, when you're listening to this podcast, so there will be no court judgments. And this 
case uh, is the case of um, the Law Society of British Columbia and Thomas Harding. And I know you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. Why is the law society and a disciplinary decision of a lawyer related to driving law? But as you know, Paul, driving law yes. drives the law. Of course. And it is a driving law case. It is a driving law case. So Mr. Harding, who has been a guest on this podcast before. Has he? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. He talked about the meat chart mm. at ICBC for our um, Long-time listeners, you will remember that. Mm, yeah. Meat chart. <laughs> anyway, Thomas is a nice guy. I like Thomas. Yeah, he is a nice guy. Um, he gets in a lot of trouble. He gets in a lot he of trouble. He gets in a lot of trouble, but I think his heart's in the right place, and the Court of Appeal agreed. Well, I also think he's smart, um, and I think he is a zealous advocate for his clients. And um, The Court of Appeals found as much. Sometimes he's uh, you know, a little bit too zealous, and sometimes he thinks his zealotry will get him through um, where maybe a different angle would work. Yes. Um, but we all run our files differently. Yes. Um, so the evidence of, or the, the issue in the case was Mr. Harding was defending two individuals, or not defending, prosecuting for two individuals who were um, injured in a motor vehicle accident. But in, in, in reality, he was also defending. In reality, yeah. he was also defending. You're that right. Was his because point. ICBC's defense lawyers, their entire theory of the case was well, you're just making your injuries up to get money. Yeah. You're poor, you want money, you fake your injuries to get rich quick. Well, which is the position <laughs> that ICBC probably takes all the time. All the time. But ICBC has a problem when they do this, because when they make these allegations, if they accuse somebody of fraud without having a foundation for making an accusation of fraud, which is an accusation of criminal behavior, they can expose themselves to massive punitive damages for the reputational harm that they have caused. Thomas has got some cases with ICBC. Yeah, there's one I remember that was Arsinovsky. Chris Carter, his colleague, came on our podcast to talk about the Arsenovsky decision. Yeah, where ICBC had done something dirty and they ended up paying big money. Yes. And so this was the crux of the case. Were these people actually injured or were they faking it? And there were two things that Thomas allegedly did wrong, according to the Law Society. And he had a disciplinary hearing at the Law Society and the Law Society actually found him um, guilty of professional misconduct. The first thing that he did, they alleged, uh, was he caused a mistrial. And they found that he intentionally and or negligently caused it through professional misconduct. Um, and the basis of this was that he, in the course of cross-examining ICBC's expert, attempted to do like a Karnak the Magnificent line mm. where he basically said to the expert, you're like Karnak the Magnificent. You put the envelope up to your up to your temple, and then all of a sudden you know what's inside it, but you're just guessing. And the judge shut that down. The judge is like, no, that's not a permissible cross-examination question. You're you're just, you know, mocking the witness in the witness box. It's I not... think the way you just asked it was permissible, but I think he, it was a little bit more... Well, Thomas is more I dramatic. I think he was more dramatic and more <laughs> cynical. <laughs> I am... Uh, yeah. So, um, so Thomas backed off. He didn't ask the question, but he didn't drop the issue either. He waited until he got to his jury address. And in his closing submissions to the jury, he said, this expert witness is basically Karnak the Magnificent. He just guesses and lo and behold, it's the right answer. Yeah. 
He's not mocking the witness. The Court of Appeals says, presumably, the witness wasn't even in the courtroom when he said that, because why the heck would he be? Yeah, he's gone. He <laughs> he's, got... he's testified, he's left, he doesn't care. So, Karnak um, was the cause of the mistrial, uh, coupled with... I don't see why it was a mistrial, but well, there was a mistrial the, in the any event. The judge determined that this, you know, had prejudiced the jury. I don't think the Court of Appeal would have agreed with it being a mistrial. Yeah. I think the Court of Appeal, reading their judgment, would have been like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's sarcastic and it's silly, but it was part of, this is what they ultimately determined, it was part of zealous advocacy for his client. Look, I've had prosecutors speak terribly of witnesses that have been put forward for the defense, and you're sitting there going, how can you say something like that? And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I guess that's their job. Like, I don't. It's not my. It's not my angle. It's not my method. But. I remember the second trial that we did together. The client testified. The first trial we did together, the client also testified, but the crown was just mostly exceedingly tedious in cross examination. But the second trial, in written submissions, the crown suggested on the voir dire argument to determine whether the evidence of blood alcohol readings was admissible. That because she was intoxicated. Her memory was faulty, and thus she should not be believed. I think we had a bunch of trials before that, but yes, I remember that one. That yeah. was, uh, <laughs> the, the, that didn't go very far, but the judge yeah. also didn't, didn't, didn't comment on it or say anything about yeah, it. Yeah, he did. He, he did, said he yeah. disagreed with that suggestion that the intoxication hadn't been proven because yeah. they weren't at the stage of the trial, and it was inappropriate for the Crown to suggest as much. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. This was in the border. Yeah. So... Um, there was also no evidence to support intoxication. That in is true. Yeah. <laughs> point being that um, the uh, uh, the point being that you can suggest these things to the jury. You can say things as long as you have a good faith basis for it. It's done to defend your client. It's connected to the evidence, and it doesn't go too far. Well, and the good faith basis doesn't have to be, uh, you know, that you feel you can prove that thing beyond a reasonable doubt. You just have to have a... a, Civil trials, it's balance of a probability. Well, that's the point. I mean, you just have to have some reason to believe that this was there and there is actually a reason behind your belief. Not much more than that. The second thing that Thomas did that caused the mistrial, which the Law Society then found constituted professional misconduct, was in his closing submissions to the jury... He suggested that the lawyers for ICBC, allegedly suggested that the lawyers for ICBC were not accusing his clients of fraud because they didn't want to say the big bad word, as he referred to it repeatedly, the big bad word, that they were tiptoeing around the issue, but that they were effectively trying to make the jury believe that his clients were fraudsters, even though they had no evidence of any actual fraud. Yeah, and there's obviously a reason for that. As we said, it would be, you know, things went sideways for them. There could be huge costs against them. So instead of using the word, they just use every other word. I thought the Court of Appeals assessment of this was very interesting. It's rare that I'm saying such good agreement with the Court of Appeal on an analysis. Uh, I didn't. Oh ex- I didn't expect I it to go. I didn't expect it to go. This, I didn't expect it to go this way. I don't know. I, I didn't expect the Court of I can't Appeal to appreciate Thomas as much as they did. I have no idea with the BC Court of Appeal. I don't understand. Anyway, <coughs> the um, 
Court of Appeal said that about juries specifically that in our multicultural society, we can expect that judges presiding over cases or juries being the triers of fact in cases are going to be made up of people from different cultures and different backgrounds. And to some people, suggesting an allegation of fraud may be something that causes them to think, oh my goodness, something nefarious has occurred here. But to some other people, making an allegation of fraud might be the type of thing that puts them off against the alleger. As in, like, if you were to go around saying, you know, Wrigley is committing fraud all the time, that would put me off against you because you shouldn't be accusing my dog of fraud. He's perfect. All right. So where's the Court of Appeal going with this? I haven't read it. He's saying, they say it's effectively that pointing the finger at ICBC and trying to point out what they're doing without stating their case in a way that would attract concern or leave them um, vulnerable to negative attitudes from the jury towards them for making allegations that they perceive to be inappropriate is a fair thing for plaintiff's counsel to do in a motor vehicle collision if they have a good faith basis to believe that that was what ICBC was doing. And the Law Society also felt that Thomas was like personally impugning the reputations of those lawyers. But he was very careful, the Court of Appeal found, to always refer to ICBC and the defense, that is ICBC, not the lawyers by name or counsel. Yep. So, well, yeah. Thomas is careful. They, they agreed with him on that. So I just thought this was like just a fantastic decision from the Court of Appeal looking at a driving law case. And finding the the importance of the role that counsel plays, and they emphasize throughout the judgment the need for um, for zealous advocacy, um, the essentially the need to be on that line without crossing it in representing your client, particularly in a tough all or nothing case. Interesting. Um, again, not what I expected from our court of appeal, um, no. and uh, essentially in the end they. Uh, came to the defense of a lawyer and he's a you know uh, uh, he's a, a zealous advocate and who has been has been essentially exonerated yep. uh, and the law society was wrong yep. and uh, you know, that's what happens and back off law society sometimes the law society's wrong sometimes the courts are wrong sometimes the law society's wrong sometimes you know sometimes the lawyers are wrong sometimes lawyers are wrong um and what is really right and wrong? I mean, this case with Thomas, if it took place 20 years ago, it would have gone the other way. Probably. Um, attitudes were different. And um, the uh, uh, belief of, of how a lawyer is supposed to come at things was different. And um, Thomas is cutting edge. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. So, Paul, it's a shorter podcast this week. Because oh. we're going into a holiday. Yep. And so I thought we'd just cut to... The chase. Your favorite part. The best part of the week. You think it's my favorite part? I assume it's your favorite part. Isn't it, isn't it your favorite part? Well, it's among my favorite parts. There's no doubt about it. Well, what's your favorite part? When I introduce you? Um, I like the casual banter at the beginning. Casual banter. Yeah, uh, we had great mm -hmm. casual banter that Paul made me delete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People don't need to know that part about my 
problems. You're being wrong. <laughs> All right, so it's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. driver of the week all right so this is a good one and i think we've had this something similar to it before but i think it's it's worth comment just like you know every time somebody's charged with impaired driving on a golf cart or a A lawnmower lawnmower, like a riding mower um that's always worth uh worth comment uh i know there was one where i think somebody was riding a horse or something which seemed completely wrong to me pool noodle this is, uh, well, the pool noodle hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. could happen this weekend. Um, remember, everybody, a pool noodle is a conveyance in Canada, and if you have a blood alcohol concentration at or over 80 milligrams in the two-hour window after you've used a pool noodle, um, you're committing an offense. Yeah. But let's talk about this offense. This was um, uh, a traffic stop of a horse and buggy. Um, and they were uh, Amish juveniles, so underage, riding unsafely in a horse and buggy, and uh, 20-year-old male, and um, the passengers were two 17-year-old males, allegedly impaired driving in a horse and buggy. So Amish. Always the children. Amish horse and buggy. Always the Amish DUI, kids. DUI, <laughs> underage drinking charges. This was in uh, Pennsylvania. So Love it. Yeah, this one showed up this morning in... Well, it showed up yesterday in one news uh, story in my uh, in my Google alerts, and then this morning it showed up reposted two hundred times uh, in my Google alerts. And I guess um, you know, just because you're Amish doesn't mean that uh, you don't like to drink and you don't make poor decisions when drinking, and you don't like to drive your buggy drunk. Yeah. Anyway, um, I just wonder still about uh, horse and buggy because. Really, who's who's driving? You know, in your vehicle, it's the engine driving. Your horse and buggy, it's the horse. You're just asking the horse what to do. Yeah, but you could direct your horse to do something stupid. The horse won't do it. You think? Horse has a brain. Back in the day, long before we had cars, horses and buggies were all over the place, and there was people who were drunk. Yeah, back in the day, you and me, baby. Um, the uh, the um, there's horses and buggies all over the place. You go back, you will not find news articles or news stories about it. Uh, it starts with the car. Um, and there's a reason for that. So the reason was that the horse will get you home. Yep. You could go to the tavern, you could get piss-ass drunk, you could get on your horse, and your horse will get you home. It recognizes that you're there. So, you know, I always think, I'm not quite, I'm not quite convinced that they should be investigating people for this. I think in, in such circumstances, they should probably... Uh, uh, the police should probably exercise their discretion and just jump aboard and head on home with the with the kids in the back of the buggy. Well, there you go. So this Canada Day weekend, don't drink and ride a horse buggy. Don't drink and pool noodle or floaty. Well, it's, or it's after. Canoe. It's after too, so you can't drink afterward. Yeah. yeah, just two hours on either end. Well, two hours on either end, but then after that, you've got to keep track of your drinking, too, because yeah. if you have a blood alcohol concentration that's over 20 milligrams and it's six hours after you used a pool noodle, uh, they can back extrapolate to the time that you, that, guilty. you, that you noodled. Guilty. And you're guilty. So that's the law in Canada. Hard to believe, but <laughs> that is, in fact, the law. Yep. So if you have a driving law-related issue or a pool law, 
pool noodle. Pool noodle law related issue, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. We'll be back in the office on Monday and hopefully I won't have COVID. Hope not. <laughs>